As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm Meg. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. All right, we were live last week. We are back to normal this week. And this week, Paul Tenorio of The Athletic joins ahead of this weekend's U.S. soccer presidential election. Obviously, this is something that we have been talking about a lot at The Athletic. We will be talking more about it. We're going to circle back around on the equal pay settlement since Paul is able to provide his expertise on the men's national team's side of things. We've we've got more on the new TV deal for U.S. soccer and, of course, just plenty more about U.S. Soccer Federation in general. But before we get to the rest of today's episode, as always, to show your support of Full Time Plus, get all of our women's soccer coverage and everything else The Athletic has to offer, on our site and app, you can subscribe right now at theathletic.com slash full-time. Now, I do, of course, want to start with the news, but I also cannot record this podcast first without expressing my sorrow over the passing of Stanford goalkeeper Katie Meyer. Now, obviously, this is a player that so many of us knew and followed thanks to her performance in the NCAA championship against North Carolina, just an all-time display not just on penalty kicks and her saves, but her competitive nature, her sense of humor shining through with her reactions to the camera as well, but she was much more than just this one moment to her teammates, to her friends, and to her family. Um, I did also want to take this moment to share a post from Bethany Balser from OL Reign, the U.S. Women's National Team, which she shared on Wednesday evening as well, and she posted it on her Instagram. It reads, I keep seeing people say check on your people and there's nothing wrong with that statement and I get everyone's sentiment but sometimes that's not enough that's not the simple solution to this the people closest to me could check in and I could lie to them for fear of being a burden I could brush it off like it's nothing you could do all the right things as a friend but something like this could still happen it's a scary reality but an all too real one I think the more we encourage vulnerability, the less judgmental we are, and the more accepting and loving we can be as a society will allow people to be comfortable as their most authentic self. So yes, check on your people. But I know people can sometimes, can still be living two lives at the same time because I know I have. I didn't know Katie, just what I saw on social media, but from what I've heard, she has some pretty amazing friends who I guarantee checked in on her. 
So let's also start having the hard conversations that need to be had and normalize what we go through so people don't feel that ending their life is the best option. My thoughts are with everyone at Stanford, her family, her friends, the women's soccer community at large. And of course, there is no easy or good way to shift back into the news from this. But I did want to take this moment to pass along my thoughts. Just a few quick notes before we get into the conversation with Paul on U.S. soccer. The U.S. women's national team is heading to Columbus and Philadelphia for their upcoming April friendlies with both games scheduled against Uzbekistan, the first time U.S. Women's National Team has ever played this team. Um, Uzbekistan is currently ranked 45th in the world, according to FIFA, but with CONCACAF and UEFA all booked up for this window, options were extremely limited when it came to available teams. The first friendly will be played in Columbus, Ohio, on Saturday, April 9th at the new home stadium of the Columbus Crew. That game is at 5.30 p.m. Eastern and will air on Fox and Univision. Then the U.S. Women's National Team will make their return to Subaru Park in Chester, Pennsylvania, home of the Philadelphia Union, one of my favorite stadiums, for the second match on Tuesday, April 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern. That game is on ESPN2 and Univision. The U.S. Women's National Team Players Association announced a new partnership with nonprofit Kiva. They'll be deploying microloans to small businesses via their U.S. Women's National Team Player Impact Fund with an announced amount of $2.5 million. Players are hoping to extend their work on equal pay through the partnership. I, I hope that we have a little bit more on this, even potentially on this podcast soon, because I think it's a very interesting partnership and would love to hear more from them. Um, Paul and I, of course, will discuss this a bit more later on, but U.S. Soccer announced their English language media rights deal this week with Turner Sports and Warner Media, picking up the rights for an eight-year deal starting in 2023. U.S. men's national team games and U.S. women's national team games will stream on HBO Max, and then either TNT or TBS is going to air approximately half of the matches. They're expecting about 20 a year for the teams. All right, Paul Tenorio is back on the show. We are ready to dig in to all things U.S. soccer, so let's just get right to it. All right, Paul, let's let's rewind to a day that, honestly, I <laughs> I wasn't ever really sure that was going to come, but, you know, we have this proposed settlement for the U.S. Women's National Team in place for the Equal Pay lawsuit, and the reason why I really wanted to talk to you about it is, you know, all of this hinges on collective bargaining now, and collective bargaining is not just necessarily with the women's national team right at the moment, right? Like, all of these fates are tied together, and the men's national team is very much involved in this process. And so I wanted to get your perspective on kind of how they've been going through their negotiations. And and first, I wanted to start with why why have they just kind of been so patient in letting the terms of their previous CBA just be active for so long without getting a new deal across the line? Because I think that's been a little confusing for folks to understand. I think, um, yeah, it is confusing to understand why they would do that. I, I think it, part of it is a, is there is a longer term strategy, I think, that's at play. And I think part of it was probably impacted by covid and and specifically how COVID affected the World Cup qualifying schedule. Because if you're a national team, you really only have one point of leverage, the senior national team, or at least the men's senior national team. I think the women's national team has done a you know great job of um, using 
media, their fans, the the narrative to help to apply pressure in their in their CBA negotiations and to sway public opinion. Certainly, I don't think the men's national team has that um, in their arsenal. You know, the 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 mood around the national team, the men's national team in general, is more negative after missing the World Cup. Um, and so, in my opinion, the one leverage point they have is a strike. And you have kind of two options if you were to strike, right? You can strike during qualifying or before qualifying and try to apply the pressure. But you have a group of 21-year-olds and 22-year-olds who want to go play in a World Cup. You have your biggest superstar, Christian Pulisic, who was on the field experiencing heartbreak in Cuba, missing his first chance at a World Cup. So if you took a vote in the men's national team, the Players Association, I think it would be probably difficult to create a consensus to strike and potentially miss the World Cup. But if you qualify for the World Cup, maybe that's a time that you can start to hold a little bit of leverage over U.S. soccer and say, okay, well, we're not going to get on a plane to Qatar or, you know, we're not going to play in the Nations League in the summer to prepare for Qatar. So I wouldn't be surprised. I don't, you know, that hasn't certainly hasn't been vocalized by the Men's National Team Players Association. And I think in general, they've been very quiet about their strategy. Um but as I've tried to understand why this has dragged out for so long, that's the only kind of leverage point that I see that would make sense. Um, and, and I would also say that there has been a belief or a hope that the men's and women's national team can bargain off of each other. So one team gets their new deal and then the then other team looks at that deal and says, OK, pay us more. Right. I don't I don't know that there is a a huge appetite for let's negotiate together so that we can only ever increase our CBAs together at the end of every contract versus if you stagger those contracts, you can build off of each other. And I think I, I think that strategy has kind of dissipated as there's momentum for the two national teams to negotiate together in order to secure equal pay for the women's national team. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily that you know, we might see them negotiate, you know, they are sitting in on each other's bargaining sessions now for observation purposes, especially when it comes to compensation. But what I do think is really interesting is that you don't necessarily have to give up that strategy for the two unions of having staggered, you know, terms, right, those four year, five year, whatever it's going to be. But you can be now on the same structure, right. And so I think that's kind of the next challenge is, you have to have the men's union, you have to have the women's union, and you have to have U.S. soccer come together and figure out, okay, what structure are we going to end up on? Because now, you know, I, I was joking in the article that I wrote, but we have this proposed settlement, but at the center of that, it's, you know, there's a hole within it, and the filling the hole is the CBA, but then within that, you have the second layer of, we don't actually know what equal pay is going to look like, Right. And these two teams are still going to have different things that they prioritize. And I think the vibe coming out of the U.S. Women's National Team camp is not just that it needs to be equal pay, but there's another really big important word for them too, which is fair, right? Because one of the big things that we've seen within the lawsuit is not just U.S. soccer kept pointing at total compensation, right? And saying, well, the women made more than the men over the same span of time. And the women are like, yeah, but look at how many games we've played. Look at all this other stuff that we've done, right? Like we might've been making more total, but we're doing more work. So how is that equal or fair? And so that's where the challenge becomes is, 
can you not just get whatever structure is in place so that way it feels like whatever they're considering equal pay to be, but if the women do more work or play more games or get further in tournaments, that they do make more money in that same time period because that's what makes sense. Right. Yeah, there's there is nuance to equal pay. And sometimes it's easy to just say equal pay and think that that just means the same amount of money going to both teams. But to your point, not only does it factor in how many games, types of games, where the competitions are being played, who you're playing against, what the results are. But I think it's really important, a word you you said earlier, which is prioritize. What are you prioritizing? You know, the women's national team are going to be prioritizing different things than the men's national team out of necessity, right? The, the, the amount of money that the men's national team players are making is in their professional club environment is significantly different than what the women are making. And that that's a reality. That's not, you know, that's not a, a preference in terms of like, oh, well, you know, if if all things were equal, they're not. Yeah. Right. And that's the reality in which the women's national team has to negotiate. And so, yes, there is, uh, I think, more security needed from the national team on the women's side in terms of guaranteed pay and things like that, that, you know, the men's team isn't going to prioritize because they can afford to just get paid on appearances. Um, right. It's not it's not even close to one of their main sources of income. And 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 so we have to remember, like, let's contextualize what's happening here for these national teams, why they're prioritizing different things and still recognize that even though the priorities are different, it doesn't mean that you can't find these places to equalize and make fair payments happen, that there aren't these discrepancies and that we we aren't trying to find and manipulate, you know, who's getting paid what, how much over what years, which World Cup cycles it is. No, like there's an easier way to do this and a fair way to do this. And that's and that's the bottom line. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, I wanted to ask, you know, obviously equal pay has been kind of this big issue, right? And, you know, we we looked at the historical context of the lawsuit. The lawsuit is always kind of looking more to the past in terms of back pay that the players consider it owed, right? CBA is obviously looking forward to the terms of, you know, another four years or whatever it's going to be. And now these two things are tied together, to your point. Like, you can't divorce the historical connotations of how they've negotiated and what they've prioritized, um, but with equal pay, right, kind of the heart of what the struggle and kind of the defense for U.S. soccer has always been is like, well, FIFA is the one who does the payments for World Cup prize money, right? And those are two very, very, very different numbers. 
Um, and we have seen deals for other countries, you know, like I think about Australia, right? And and the way that they're going to approach, other countries have approached it is they just say, okay, well, the men's national team is going to get, you know, whatever it is, 25%, let's just say, this is a random number, I do not know what it is off the top of my head, 25% of their prize money, the women are going to get 25% of their prize money, and we consider that equal, because everyone is getting an equal rate of pay, and we don't control the amount. I don't know if that's what's going to happen in this case, but is there, you know, kind of this sense, we've both read the the amicus brief from the Men's National Team Players Association that was filed during the lawsuit where they said, well, the women should have been paid more, right? So do you think that there's maybe going to be any sort of hesitation as they start to try to figure out like what the structure looks like, maybe what prize money looks like, right? Like I think that's kind of still the nut that has to be cracked. Um, you know, ha- has there been kind of any sense at all from the men in terms of how they are even thinking about this right at the moment? No, because so, <laughs> well, there's a few things that we have to remember here. Like, and this is one of the byproducts of the fact that they've been playing on the previous terms for so long. And and the reality that CBA negotiations are difficult, right? It's hard to gain a consensus. I think you're always at a disadvantage when you are the player's side of a CBA in any professional league because you have to gain a consensus across a large group of players. Whereas an organization has a very small group of leadership who are all representing the interests of a business. And that, I think it's a little bit easier to strategize and, and create a consensus. So there, we'll start there. But also... The makeup of the Men's National Team Players Association has changed dramatically in the course of these negotiations. You have gone from veteran players who have a very good hold on their professional careers, where they are in their lives, um, they're towards the back end of their career, who you know probably had an idea, a better idea of multiple CBA negotiations, and I think probably would have served as leaders in these negotiations and discussions and tried to find um, the right consensus. Now you have a national team, which anyone who's seen the men play is all or largely, like I said before, 21 year olds, 20, some 18 year olds, 19 year olds who I can't imagine sitting them down at a negotiation table and, and asking their opinions on these things. It, it, in my opinion, probably cannot be happening. Like to some degree, like, and so because so much of the focus has been on getting to the World Cup and outside of these statements that come from this monolithic USMNT Players Association and not any specific players and all the players have the same line, right? We put out a statement and that's what we're sticking to. It's been hard to kind of get a real sense of like, okay, how much do you mean that, right? right. How much do you mean what you said? Are you going to be willing to put the prize money from the World Cups together into one pot and split it evenly there? Are you are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? And, you know, I think I think that's the big question. And I think that's the question that I'm sure the other entities that are involved in this negotiation, I'm sure in conversations, you know, I think that we've had with sources, though that's the big question is like, is this the holdup? And what is the what is the strategy going to be here? And I think, understandably so, I I think at least that that's part of the reason why we haven't heard as much or 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 heard the men's national team be publicly aggressive about their negotiating stance at this point, 
because yeah. they probably have to figure out, you know, that's a that's a big ne- negotiating point, right? That's a big thing that you can you can hold over U.S. soccer. That's what the U.S. soccer wants, right? That that solves all of their problems. And so before you say yes, let's create one pool. You've got to figure out all those other things that you want in the CBA and say, okay, well, if we're going to split our split this prize money that FIFA pays, then you know th- we want this number for game appearances. We want the increase in gold cup money or whatever it may be. I would imagine that's that's the negotiating point right there. But I would say that they've put themselves in a position through the statements they've made as a players association where it would it would be very difficult to justify not coming up with a solution that is determined through discussions between the men's and women's national team PA as to what is fair. Right. And and short of that, I mean there are some pre- there would be some pretty big questions to ask of the leadership of the MNTPA to to be providing briefs the way they did and then to not actually step up to the plate when it was their turn. Yeah. All right. I have one kind of big last one for you on the the men's national team PA and their role in this. What is your sense of their, not even necessarily relationship, but their kind of thoughts on Cindy Parlo Cohn, who's currently serving as U.S. soccer president? We're going to talk a lot about, we've got a major election coming up, but what I have found really interesting is, you know, over the past week and a half as the settlement was announced, but you know, Cindy Parlocone is sitting next to Alex Morgan on on talk shows, right? Talking about this new deal. Um, she's on a Zoom with me and Megan Rapino, and the two of them are bantering, right? Like it really feels like the corner has been turned. And obviously there was already, I think probably a little bit more trust between the women's national team and Cindy Parlocone simply because she was a women's national team player herself, a 99er, right? Like she is very much a a a player and, you know, former coach too for some of these players as well. Um, and Becky Sauerbrunn kind of really giving her this vote of confidence in their first media appearance, like as a big group, um, via zoom, where she said, you came in at kind of the time where our relationship with the Federation was at its worst. And you did what you promised to do, which was talk to us and find a deal. Um, so it has felt very like they're going to work together. Right. And yes, the CBA is still a thing that stands in the way. But there is a relationship now that can be built upon. And when I think about the men's national team and maybe that relationship, I don't know what to read into that, if anything. Well, I think, first of all, there's no way that Cindy Parlow Cohn is going to have the same relationship with the men's national team than she does the women for all of the reasons you just stated. <laughs> um, but I think that when you talk about the leadership, at least, of the men's national team, and when you there is a sense of momentum within the organization that hadn't has not and did not exist before. And when you have that sense of momentum, you want to keep it going. I think there is that sense. Now, there might be a difference in who the head of the MNTPA wants to negotiate with or thinks that they might be able to get better terms out of. I think that's a separate you know, answer probably and and not one that I'm sure that they'd be saying publicly. They might be having private conversations at the AGM about. But I think in terms of the organizational structure of U.S. soccer and the ideas of the support that the national team 
wants and needs. I think there is a belief that Cindy Parlo Cohn's leadership has helped to move the organization forward. And in conversations I've had with people who have worked around U.S. soccer and around the leadership of U.S. soccer, which includes the sporting leadership, I think there is a real confidence in her ability to to continue to guide U.S. soccer in the right direction. And as I'm sure we're going to touch on later in the show, I think it speaks to the vastly different kind of political ideas of what's best for U.S. soccer across everything that U.S. soccer oversees and maybe the the stark differences between the sporting leadership of both the men's and women's national team and the state association-led youth and adult amateur soccer associations and kind of where they're who you know where they believe the resources and the priorities should be for U.S. soccer but I've I've only heard, and I should note also, when I'm on the road for World Cup qualifiers, I see Cindy Parlocone meeting, you know, sponsors for meals, hanging out with the leaders of the men's national team, whether it's, you know, Brian McBride or Greg Berhalter or, you know, Ernie Stewart, who's the sporting director across both. Mm -hmm. She's very present. She's there and she's mingling. It's not like they're like in a separate world. So, um my my impression has been that there is a, a positive um, a vibe around Cindy Parlocone from the sporting leadership. I I would be curious though, just in it, I guess the best way to put this is like the the men's national team negotiations overall have been so difficult to get a, a handle on because they've dragged out for so long because there's been I don't want to say changing priorities. But the landscape in which they're negotiating has changed so much, both with the people who are negotiating, the men's national team players who are prominent, where the women's national team stands, um, their relationship with Cindy Parlocon. All these things have changed and they've picked their moments to be vocal about things. And it's always been aggressive. You know, it's never Mm -hmm. like it's very aggressively one way and then you don't hear anything for six months. And (laughs) so... I just like, I would not be surprised if you got like, we got an aggressive statement out of the blue tomorrow in support of Cindy Parlo Cohn or like an aggressive statement out of the blue in support of Carlos Cordero. Like it's like, that's kind of how much of a question mark there is around where does the MNTPA stand on all of this? Right. Yeah. I mean, it is really interesting to watch and obviously, you know, I think we have a bit of an advantage in that we can kind of divide and conquer between ourselves. But it is really interesting to just see how many different things are now going to play a role in this proposed settlement for the women's national team and and the role that the men's national team is going to play in it, right? And to try to, you know, wrap that into hashtag equal pay is just, there's there's a lot. There's a lot happening all of the time. I mean, just like always. imagine, I mean, just looking at the situation from afar, and obviously we've had conversations. I'm trying to like be careful because you talk to sources and some stuff's off the record, some stuff's on background. <laughs> but like, I think in general, when you look at the, at the, at how negotiations have played out for the men and how, how long they've gone without a new CBA, um, it's been a not easy ride in these Mm -hmm. negotiations. Nothing has come easily by design with the men's national team. And as we talked about at the very beginning of this, the question is, what is the design, right? Where does this end? 
What is what is the leverage point they're looking for? What is the solution they want? But it seems like it's being it's 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 purposely and I understandably so been made very difficult on US soccer to figure things out and to and to to get to a solution. And there was a point in time where they seemed really close. You know, I, I think I reported it that that they were close to a deal and it still hasn't happened. So what happened there? You know, I, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been a long slog. Right. Right. All right. I want to do I want to move on to the new television deal that was announced for U.S. soccer, because, again, we're, we're going to get to the election. But all of this stuff is kind of playing such a, a big role in maybe how people are going to vote. But, you know, huge media deal with um, Warner, which is essentially, you know, Turner and, and HBO Max. Um, what were your first thoughts on seeing this? Because I think maybe it surprised a few folks that are thinking like, oh, the main players are probably going to be like an ESPN, a CBS, um, Fox, right? And this kind of felt, I think, to a few people like a, a bit of a curveball. Definitely a bit of a curveball. But I think it speaks to this incredibly fast-paced, changing landscape around soccer properties in general. And it's it's funny because it's kind of the thing that MLS was counting on to help their deal get to the numbers that they wanted. Was that another entity outside of the normal Fox, ESPN, and I guess we could count CBS, would come into play and would change the dynamics of the negotiation? And especially because the viewing habits of American soccer fans, is you know, they're very much into streaming. And they're willing to pay. And all of these streaming services are popping up. And, and so that was the X factor. And lo and behold, you know, unsurprisingly so, some of the leaders of U.S. soccer's in-house um, marketing, you know, apparatus, the, the people who are selling these media rights, came from Soccer United Marketing, which previously was, was selling MLS, and found one of those new partners who is going to try to put a streaming service together you know, all the reports in the industry are that Warner Media and this merger with Discovery are putting together a streaming service that will try to compete with everything else that we know, Apple and Netflix yep. and all of that. And, you know, those they need content. And U.S. soccer has not just a lot of live sports content, but, you know, a willingness to create behind the scenes content with very loyal fans who will pay for that because they don't get it anywhere else. So I'm not surprised by it. I think it is, for me, a big payoff on what some people thought was a risk from U.S. soccer to break away from some, to bring everything in-house, to spend the money to build out that staff. You know, when we talk about decisions by leadership in this presidential election, that wasn't a small one. And Will Wilson, his background was with U.S. soccer. And that wasn't an easy conversation, sorry, with some. That wasn't an easy conversation with, with some and MLS to say, no, we're going to do this on our own. And they did it. And they believed they could get a better deal. And it paid off. They did get yeah. a better deal. And when we see the Spanish language deal, and it sounds like, I don't want to say they're close, but it sounds like they are focused on one partner. When that deal comes through, and with the sponsorship deals that we are kind of coming as they do trickle out with different deals, you start to see the benefit of investing in your own people and um, believing that you can sell for yourself better than another entity can sell for you and other soccer properties. 
Um, so I think it was a risk that paid off. I Like I said, I'm not surprised that Warner took it. I, I knew that they had been sniffing around MLS rights. Um, but now the question is, after watching their Champions League coverage, what did they learn from that? And how different will it be? It is interesting just because, you know, from obviously a, a women's national team point of view, right? I think that there were maybe some questions of could the women's national team rights be split, right? Would would there actually maybe be consideration of trying to figure out what the value of those rights would be independent from the men's national team? Um, that's not what we saw, but also looking at, you know, the number, it's it's in this kind of like mid high 20 million a year range like that's not an insignificant number for the federation either right in terms of pretty dedicated revenue stream for it's an eight-year deal too yeah i mean it matches what essentially what they were getting from some for everything all in previously and this is just the english language rights so with the next deal that comes the spanish language deal you are now into territory where you're making more money than you've ever made before in your in your broadcast rights. What I'm interested to see is how this will especially impact women's national team fans potentially is the men aren't going to have to play qualifiers ahead of 2026. We don't think. FIFA hasn't announced that they're in automatically as a host because it's three hosts. It's a little bit mm-hmm. different. But we assume that, that that will be the case. Right. So – you know, they're going to broadcast 10 to 12 games over TBS and TNT, and the rest per year are going to go on to HBO Max. How many women's national team games are going to be behind the paywall versus men's games? Like, that's an interesting conversation. How do you split that? Because if you're Warner Media, in my opinion, and what we've seen from stream- streaming services, certainly with CBS and Paramount Plus, is the most important games are getting put behind the paywall. Men's national team qualifiers are on Paramount Plus. Right. They're not. I think there was one Mexico. The USA Mexico game is on CBS Sportsnet. Right. Or Paramount Plus, not even on the big CBS. Right. I mean, it's March Madness and all that, but still. So if you look at the beginning portion of this contract, the most important games are going to be women's national team games. You know, the men's are going to be friendlies. Right. So, yeah, it's it is set to start in 2023, which is obviously a World Cup year. Right. So. You either have the lead-in games to the World Cup, right? Qualifiers are the summer. It will be kind of the the tune-up games. I mean, send-off games, the ones that send-off games. Yep. You know that you're excited about. You're getting ready to watch a World Cup, and then when they come back, the victory tour. Like those are going to be the most valuable properties. And so, I wonder just early on if like the women's national team fans are going to be the first. And also, I think. Like I said, I mean, if you look at the research, soccer fans will pay for content. NWSL fans with CBS and Paramount Plus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, early on, how are they going to split up what goes behind the paywall and what doesn't? And typically you'd think, you, oh, let's put the valuable ones on our TV and get the high rating. No, they want people to sign up for the streaming service. Um, so I'll, I'll be interested to see if there's like something written into the language of the contract that X number of men's games have to be behind the paywall as well as women's games. Or if the if Warner Media has the right to say no, we want to put the most important whatever games we want, whatever games we value most, wherever we want, you know, right? And yeah, it is going to be very interesting to watch kind of that that play out in terms of you know is there a strategy of maybe putting a few major women's national team games on a more accessible channel so that way you you can kind of get those big flashy numbers too, right? 
right off the bat. Um, especially like I would assume a send off game for the World Cup would probably do pretty significant numbers, especially considering that 2023 World Cup is going to be in an awkward time zone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you could potentially get some pretty good numbers for that final game ahead of the World Cup. But, yeah, it's like this weird. I mean, we're all watching it play out in real time. Like, yeah. what do you prioritize more? Right. Do you want the big numbers? And in and through that, an announcement, we cover soccer. We are here. Tune in to us. This is our talent. This is our quality, you know? Or do you say, we are here. Everyone, please pay us for our streaming services. <laughs> yes. And we'll see you on the back end of the World Cup with a men's national team friendly <laughs> on, you know, TNT. Right. I, I'm interested to see that dynamic. Right. Absolutely. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. All right, let's let's talk election. Um, obviously, this is kind of, you know, we're in the final days in the run up. There has obviously been a settlement TV deal. Uh, sponsors have also spoken out. Someone like Deloitte, right, actually coming out with a public statement saying basically like we we would not like to see return to Carlos Cordero as president um, pretty clearly. But first, like, let's just kind of set the stage because. I think when when Carlos Cordero announced that he was running again, there was kind of this vague sense of disbelief that it was even being attempted. Um, vague he sense? Has not <laughs> Strong sense of disbelief. I yeah. Think. <laughs> um, but it, it has just been a very interesting dynamic because it feels like even for me, who is obviously very much in the space, right? Like it has felt so one-sided in terms of, you know, all we have kind of seen, especially over the past couple of weeks, is like all of this news coming out of U.S. soccer that really, I think, only strengthens Cindy Parlo's Cohn case for why she should be reelected. But just in terms of, you know, we're, we're both people who are pretty dialed in. And like, I, I think generally the sense has been at first, it, it kind of was the sense of he's not running without kind of a path to a potential victory. And now it really does kind of feel like the mood has shifted of just the the support has really settled, I think, behind Cindy Parlo Cohn. At least, again, I, I am not dialed into that state association world, so I cannot really speak to that. But from the more like national professional side of things, like it really does feel like the past couple of weeks have have really only aligned to to favor Cindy Parlo Cohn. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm going to pick my words carefully because <laughs> last year or the last AGM meeting, 
I said to you that I thought it was going to be a very calm and nothing happening meeting <laughs> and my day and week, our day and week went into a totally different direction. So I don't want to jinx anything. We're going to um, knock on some wood. Yeah. I d- <laughs> just calm. Um, I would agree with that. I think one thing we've learned about these presidential elections is that when you start to get a sense of the momentum of which, you know, the movements happening behind the scenes, the conversations, the consolidation of power, you can get a sense of which direction it's going. You know, when we think back to when Carlos Cordero was first elected, that was a little bit different because there were so many different people involved and things had been, you know, chopped up in so many different ways that it literally was coming down to the day of and, you know, trades that were essentially happening on the floor after votes. And even then, in the moment, we were starting to get a sense of what these conversations were ha- or that were having, um, that people were having on the floor and, and where things were kind of going. But it came down to that last minute. And I think here you've got two people running. You've got two sort of interest groups who are kind of throwing their support behind them. And then ultimately, you know, there are still... Um, groups that can sway things hard one way or the other. And it feels like, as you said, things are aligning to to continue with Cindy Parlo Cohn. The support has been very clear. And it's not insignificant when we talk about sponsors coming out and saying things. The money that comes into U.S. soccer, it doesn't matter if you are a senior national team, a youth national team, a coach, a ref, a state association – that's where your funds are coming from. And if those start to dry up because of a leadership change that isn't supported, that has an impact too. So, yeah, I do think that the support <laughs> has been clearly being pushed behind Cindy Parlocone. I think it speaks to, like I said before, the momentum that's felt inside the building, the mood change that has existed inside the building, which is not insignificant, um, the belief in leadership that maybe hasn't existed um, for a long time, uh, the belief that they're turning a corner, like you you said that earlier, that mm-hmm. the nat- the women's national team and players feel that way. I think that there's a belief within the infrastructure of U.S. soccer as well, and that matters. And I think that's why we've seen this big push from so many different angles. Um, and I think another side of it is, and this is a conversation I had with someone the other day, you know, the, it wasn't that long ago what happened with Carlos Cordero. It's very no. fresh in people's minds. They don't. It's not like it's some distant memory. You know, it's very present for people, and they're saying, and, and and at least the ones I'm t- talking to are saying, like, I I kind of can't believe that this is happening right now because, you know, it takes a leap on his part to believe that he is the one to say something like he's the only one that can fix this. That that statement alone to some of the people I spoke to said more about him and his leadership and his grasp on, you know, who we would be trying to lead than anything else. And that that right there kind of swayed their decision. If, if it wasn't already made up before, it was kind of like you really don't have a grasp on this at all. Yeah, um, I mean, there's always Megan Rapino tweets on this front too of just her her reaction was truly, I think, the one that everyone was waiting for, and it didn't disappoint. I think. But I want to make clear that, like, 
everyone's like, oh, yeah, of course the women's national team feels that way. Like, no, like a lot of people feel that way that work in like the the people that you don't talk to that are like volunteers for U.S. soccer that mm-hmm. were in the middle of that, that were doing the grind, that were that are doing it on their own time because they, I don't know, they care about American soccer at the grassroots or wherever else that also were like, you know, at least one person I spoke to was was like, man, like it was like basically making Rapino tweets but in a conversation with me, you know, and they're right, not Megan right. Rapino, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously there, there is still, you know, I think a lot of stuff that we don't have visibility to, right? Like the politics of U S soccer are a complicated, a complicated thing in the nicest possible terms. But what a major thing that has happened too, though, is that the role of the athletes council has shifted also like stemming directly from the USA gymnastics scandal you have a, a a much larger role for an athlete vote now, which is, I think, going to play a factor here. But uh, that's also, I think, kind of causing some of this tension is that there is resentment from other corners because the, the Federation is more than just, especially the senior national teams, right? And that that's where I think it becomes very interesting of, I think that there are maybe some valid criticisms of the Federation has much larger obligations to this wider world, right? And how do you kind of wrap your arms around all of that? At the same time, senior national teams, and especially like thinking about what we have gone through in women's soccer over the past year, especially thinking about the report from Kristen Press in the Washington Post in terms of her reporting, former head coach of the Chicago Red Stars, Rory Dames, to U.S. soccer for his behavior and nothing coming of that. And that was under Carlos Cordero's tenure, right? There are a lot of factors here in terms of, again, if we want to talk about priorities, right, and how all of this stuff gets worked out and and kind of shifted in place. But I, I think it is it is going to be very interesting. And the one big other factor here, too, that I especially want to talk to you about is the 2026 World Cup. Because that's the one that I think kind of is the real wild card because that is is going to be obviously such a financial, you know, thing for the, the Federation. I know both Carlos and Cindy have also talked about potentially bidding for 2027 or 2031 for the Women's World Cup. Um, but 2026, like we know, right? And I think a lot of... The women's world is looking to that World Cup to provide a bump for it. Obviously, the men's MLS is looking for it, but state youth associations are looking to it as well. And, you know, could that be a wild card for people, do you think? Well, I want to start by going back and saying, you know, it's funny because the conversations I used to have with sources at U.S. Soccer were always like, hey, don't forget, we do a lot of things here besides the senior national team when like all of this was just starting. Like, a, like the vast majority of the employees that I live in Chicago, so I go to Soccer House a lot of times for these conversations and interviews. Like the vast majority of the people you walking by here are working on things that have nothing to do with the things that you report on most of the time. And it seems like some of what's happening in this presidential election, that seems like it, it is, you know, kind of uh, an, an example of that. Like this is like the state association saying, hey, you're forgetting about us and we are the vast majority of what you're supposed to be doing, the grassroots, the youth levels, coach and referee education has a much bigger impact on those state associations and, and youth levels than they do on the senior national team, certainly, um, or even the pro leagues. 
And but I I, I do also want to say that U.S. soccer has to represent all of the interests. And I do think that Cindy Parlacone has addressed some of the things that the state associations weren't happy with or that they thought that they could have been handled better. You know, specifically the fact that she had to lead U.S. soccer through a pandemic with the types of losses and pauses that every sports league went through and that outside of golf, every sports league suffered from. And, you know, understandably, there are going to be people that aren't happy when you take huge losses during an unprecedented global pandemic. The question is, you know, and I think is like, can we realistically step back and say, you know, does, does Cindy Parlacone have the capability of leading both the, the youth levels and the pro levels? Does she have a unique skill set in which her experience, you know, has had experience in both of those places? Yes. You know, does has she been clear that she has, you know, her eyes on both places and, and is making efforts in both places? Yes. Um, but it does, I think, dive into kind of some of the political stuff that that exists, that is evident at every AGM when the mic gets opened up. That's just, it's an X factor. And it's, and it's, it's very difficult to navigate, I think, for anybody, whoever's in charge. Um, but certainly, I think we should acknowledge that, like, this is, um, that, that her reign when it comes to youth level was inc- unprecedented in the difficulties that were out of her hands. And I don't know that, that that's being like really, I, I know that's where a lot of the issues come from, but like, I don't know, having covered a league that went through a pause and like <laughs> yeah. understanding the losses and the fact that they, they renegotiated MLS, their CBA twice during the pandemic. And, you know, look at what's happening with baseball now. I mean, it had a major impact on sports and it shifted things and it created really, really bad relationships between a lot of labor forces and leadership. And so I'm not really surprised in that sense that there's, you know, bad feelings about what happened during those years. Unless, again, like I said, like I was just reading about Rory McIlroy. Unless you're golf, you were suffering. And, 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 and so this is kind of a little bit of the fallout. As far as the impact of the World Cup, of course. I mean, everybody involved in American soccer, from media to the grassroots to the pro leagues, is looking at 2026 and saying, this is the moment you know look at what 1994 did for soccer in this country look at what 1999 did for soccer in this country Mm -hmm. so yes the expectation is that if 1994 created a pro league and 1999 created a pro league and drove interest across the grassroots levels um, then the expectation is that 2026 is going to provide that same jump so what can you do with it and you know, I, I think that's the question being asked is, what's my piece of 2026 going to look like? What are you going to do for me when that money comes in? What can you provide to me? What can you, what are the points that you're going to leverage that's going to help me? And and that's where I think Carlos Cordero's relationship with FIFA comes into play, his relationship with Infantino. I think, um, you know, certainly I think it's created this tension even though it's a positive moment that's coming for U.S. soccer, like Sam and I have been writing about this forever with MLS, it's like everyone's saying what's going to happen because everything's been looking at 2026 as this huge moment. So if you waste it, 
Like there, there's a big fear. Like, will it be wasted? What are you going to do with it? And so it's a very valid question that right now that everyone's asking is like, what are you going to do for me out of 2026? Because if you miss this moment, you're in trouble. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. It's just so interesting in terms of how it's going to play a role over the next few years, because obviously it, it is still four years away. Right. But I think so many people are already looking to this and, you know, like the host city stuff is still very much in the works. Right. So this is just kind of this big future event that is hanging over everyone. And it, I think it just is really fascinating too how even the women's game is looking at it and saying, okay, how do we take advantage of this? How do we leverage this into more interest in women's soccer at the same time as men's soccer because it's being played in the United States? And so, yeah. It's, it's just exposure, right? There is going to be yeah. an unprecedented level of exposure to the sport. People who won't go out for an NWSL game or an MLS game or U.S. men or women's game are going to go to an NFL stadium with 50,000 people and experience the sport for the first time and experience the sport at some of its best, right? If you're in the same, you know, fan group as, you know, I, re I remember being in Orlando and they still talk about the the Dutch fans and the Irish fans in downtown Orlando and the experience, like people that live there will never forget it. And it, it pulled them into the game to the point where decades later when Orlando City showed up, they went to the Citrus Bowl for the first game just hoping it would be something like the World Cup, right? You have this enormous level of exposure to the sport, so everyone will benefit from that. And then because of that enormous level of exposure, there is an enormous amount of money that's hanging over 2026. And again, everyone's asking, what is my piece of that going to be? How do I get to that? How can I be sure that you're going to get me a piece of that? Because it doesn't come, it comes around how often? Every two decades, right. you know? And so that's why everyone's like, a little bit tense and a little bit squirrely and trying to figure out how can we leverage this to gr to use it as a springboard, not just American soccer is about incremental growth, right? Let's build this league in a way, whether it's NWSL or MLS, that it doesn't fold, that we don't spend too much. And that takes the league down the way the NASL got taken down on the men's side, or whether you want to look at WUSA, yep. you know? And so everything, the whole structure is, incremental growth, controlled spending, controlled costs. Let's slowly build. But when you have a World Cup coming to your country, that's out the window, baby. Get rid of that profile, that that model. You have one chance to jump levels. And then you can go back to whatever model for growth you want, but you can't waste that one springboard. And and understandably, that causes a little bit of apprehension about what will that look like? Because your models aren't based on it, but you know you have to take advantage of it. Yeah. All right, Paul. Well, we will both be uh, watching the live stream, I'm sure, on Saturday to see what happens. And, you know, you, you've already got MLS games to be going to as well. We're still waiting for Challenge Cup to, to kick off, but I definitely appreciate all the time today. And I think it's definitely good, just good for the two of us to talk big picture U.S. soccer stuff because it obviously affects both of our worlds so much. Just, you know, hoping for a, a relatively smooth AGM so I can actually <laughs> well, attend just, the game. I'm going to put my mic next to the wood that I'm knocking on <laughs> so that way we don't get... Oh, boy. We'll see how it you goes. Know. But always enjoy talking about this stuff with you. And, and 
Um, and I, I hope that when people listen to this, they also recognize, and, and it's an important thing to remember, which is how much every single entity in American soccer is linked. The successes and the failures, they go together. They impact people. They impact jobs. They impact um, the growth of the sport on both the men's and women's side. It's not, and this is the whole point, I think, of a lot of the equal pay argument. It's not separate. They're not different. You know, we're all in this together. We're all impacting each other. And to your point, 2026 is a, is a sign of that. It's a men's World Cup. It's not going to have just an impact on Major League Soccer or on the men's national team. It'll impact everything in American soccer. And um, and every time there's a, a big U.S. soccer federation issue, it is something that bleeds into every little bit of American soccer, too. And And I think we should always remember that when we're talking about these different issues. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Paul, for the time. And I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Paul. He was <laughs> back for real from paternity leave for basically a day before I messaged him and said, hello, it's time to come on the podcast. This conversation is very overdue. So I'm glad that he is back and was able to make the time. All right. One more thing. As always, my wife and I started the Gilded Age. And uh, if if you have thoughts on this not that good but oddly watchable show i mean i guess that's a julian fellows joint but my mentions are ready for them mostly we are obsessed with carrie coon and her bearded husband with tremendous wife guy energy even though he is absolutely a robber baron it doesn't make sense we're just rolling with it but also danae benton who is just she is a beautiful light in this world and also r.i.p great comment all right for all things full-time you can visit fulltimepod.com there are links for all of the major podcast platforms in one spot plus more info if you would like to subscribe to the athletic and support all of our women's soccer coverage you can do that right now at theathletic.com full-time it is always one of our very best deals my name is Meg. You have been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. If you are wondering about my broken leg, <laughs> there are x-rays up on my Instagram. That is where I've been putting all of them for uh, all of my friends who have been tracking my uh, new metal rod in my leg. So always a fun time there. Um, Full Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg. Thanks for listening and be back with you next week. 